of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say first of all that I'm thankful for you. And I'm thankful for every kindness that you have shown and continue to show to Betty and myself. I pray for you. Pray the Lord's blessings upon you. And I invite you this morning to turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I call this a picture of justification. And I'll read those first verses. Verses 1 through 11. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. 
Go and sin no more. As we read through the Gospel of John, all the miracles, all the circumstances, and all the confrontations here in the Gospel of John They're meant to show three things, basically. First of all is our condition as sinners. There are all kinds of pictures. The lame and the halt and the blind and this woman and many other situations that show us something of our condition spiritually as sinners. But also, secondly, they show Christ and His ability to save. His ability to heal. His ability to raise up and deliver. And then thirdly, they show Grace, as it meets our condition. And grace, as it assures that God gets all the glory. The Lord Jesus Christ, in our text, demonstrates how He is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. And we find as we do Old and New Testament that adultery is sin. It was under the law. It is in this gospel dispensation. It is simply, plainly, no matter what the temperature in our day is, it is sin. But this woman is more than that. Because she is a picture of us as spiritual adulterers. You see, that's what idolatry is. It's spiritual adultery. And we are all by nature idolaters. We by nature would make ourselves our own God. We would by nature be deceived to believe on a false God. And so it can be said of all men in Adam, by nature, by birth, as was said by God of Israel. He said they've all gone a-whoring after other gods. And ready to accuse 
were these Pharisees. And the Lord Jesus is confronted here by the scribes and the Pharisees with what they believe is a dilemma that will make him look bad before everyone present. And they take the law of Moses. They take the Holy Scriptures and they try to use them against the one who gave it for their own evil purposes. And that's the same way it is in our day and has been in every age since the fall. Paul described it like this. He said they rest or twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And they bring this woman, supposedly taken in the very act of adultery, and they set her before Christ. Verse 3, it says, They brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, This woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. Moses said that we ought to take this woman out and stone her For what she's done. And they were just like most. They had part right. Actually those involved in that act of adultery. Were both to have been taken out and stoned. But then they turn. Quoting and using Moses. And they ask. What sayest thou? I've learned something over the years. And then that is most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, when someone has asked me a question or asked my opinion in a matter of Scripture, most of the time, They're really intending on telling me something. They're really most of the time want to tell me what their opinion is. And so these men say unto our Lord, What sayest thou? But they're not really interested in what he said. Because they think that they have trapped him. They think they have boxed him into a corner. And if he says, let her go, then he will show himself against the law. 
And if he says to them, stone her, he will not be a friend of sinners like he said he was. He will not show mercy as he said he would. And the truth is, this is the dilemma of all the ages. He's faced here, they set before him the dilemma of all times, the dilemma that man has never been able to answer of himself. And that is, how can God be just? And act righteously against the guilty and at the same time show mercy. Now you can ask a lot of questions. As Brother Scott Richardson used to say, there's a whole lot of questions not worth asking. And there's a whole lot of questions not worth answering. But this is the question of questions. This is one that has to be answered if there is ever any hope. Because you and I, regardless of what we claim to be, we are before God as sinners just like this woman. And the law is the law. And justice is justice. And that was exactly the question that Job asked. He said, how can man, man that's born of woman, man that drinks iniquity like water, how can he be just with God? How can God show mercy to us and act in a way of righteousness? But if you notice, the first thing that Jesus did was he didn't really immediately react to what they said. It does not even appear that he showed any emotion toward what they thought They had trapped him in. And so in verse 6 it says, Though they said what they said to tempt him, that they might have to accuse him of, but it says he simply stooped down and with his finger rode on the ground as though he heard them not. He just simply rode on the ground. And he acted as if he hadn't heard one word that they said. He stooped down and with his finger rode on the ground. And sometime, some way maybe, it was a reminder to them that it was a finger, this very finger really, that had written the law of God. 
It was the finger of God that had written this law given to Moses whereby they seek to stone this woman. And here he is. God manifest in the flesh. In Exodus it says, And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. Same finger of God. Same finger. And by this, he showed approval of the law. Why? Because the law is holy. The law is good. And he ratified that law, and he showed himself as the lawgiver. Exodus again. Written by the finger of God. Christ said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he does not lower the standard of God. You see, that's the way that man always comes up with, in one way or another to find mercy and to find grace from God, this is what we'll do. We'll lower the standard of God. We'll reduce God to being less than holy. We'll reduce God to being less than absolutely just. We'll just open the door wide enough that we can go in or low enough that we can do this, that, or the other. That's what man always wants to do by nature. And it always winds up with this. God being less than he really is. And man being more than he really is. That's always the way. And in their blindness, they did not grasp what he was doing. And like Belshazzar, they were just like Belshazzar, who did not understand what was written on the wall by the same finger. You remember the vision that Belshazzar had? It says there were a hand appeared and wrote on that wall, same hand, same finger, the finger of God. And it simply said this, Daniel interpreting it, it said this, Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Did you know that's all the law can say to you and me? That's all the law can ever say to sinners such as we are. And that is that we are weighed in the balances of God's law, in the balances of divine justice. We're weighed in the balances accurately and truly by God. And we're found wanting, lacking. 
We're called workers of iniquity. You know what iniquity is? It is inequity. It is not being equal to what God requires and what God commands. All we can ever work is iniquity. We're weighed in the balances and found wanting. But yet they are willing to bring this woman before Christ. They're willing to use her as this example. They're willing to take her and stone her, should he say such. And there in the blindness of their own sin and being those that he described in this way in another place. That they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. There they are. And that is what self-righteousness always produces. That's the way these such as the Pharisees always are. They are so proud of what they are in themselves. They trust in themselves that they are themselves righteous. What's the effect of that? They despise others. They find fault in others. They accuse others. They point out others. They say, look how good I am and look how bad they are. That's all that self-righteousness produces. That's all that works-oriented religion comes up with. That's why there has been so much meanness and so much violence and so many things that have taken place over the course of history in the name of Christianity because it's performed by those who trust in themselves that they are righteous and they despise others. I'll tell you this. When I found out where righteousness is, I quit looking for it in anybody else. When I read what the scriptures say, that there is none righteous, no, not one, that means you, but first of all, it means me. None righteous, none good, none that seeketh after God. And we can wear religion as some kind of a covering and a garment, and we can flaunt our own goodness and look down our nose at others, it's going to be the same. We're like these Pharisees. And so they press him farther. Here they are in the face of perfect sinlessness. (laughs) Here they are in him who is absolutely perfect. And they're still acting like they're better not only than this woman, but better than him. Is that blindness? Is that deception? Is that self-deception? And so in verse 7, it says that they continued asking him. 
And when he lifted up himself, he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. He turned that bright, brilliant, exposing, condemning law that they have come under the banner of. He turns that light that exposes, which is all it can do is expose sin. He turns it on them. That's all the law can do. Expose, condemn, demand justice and wrath against sin, all sin. As a matter of fact, the apostle tells us that if we offend in one point, we're guilty of all. We're guilty of all. It isn't if I am 99 and 99, 100% perfect, I have to be perfect. 100% perfect. And that will never be. Not in myself. Not in what I do. Not in what you do. And so he, he goes on and he tells them, if you're without sin, any sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. What if that were to take place today here? All you had to do, all you had to do to be on the, the, the side of the law was to say I've never offended in one point. Just one point. But if you've offended in one point, and I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments either. If we have in any way failed to, in every point, in every act, in every thought, in every word, in every motive, been absolutely pure, then all the law can say to us is guilty. That's what Paul tells us in Romans. He says that God has brought all of us, whether we be Jew or Gentile, together and in and of ourselves, we're guilty. Guilty. That's why when somebody asks me, what's your position under the law or on the law, I always tell them this, guilty. In myself, that's all I can ever be is guilty. But know what Christ did next. In verse 8 it says, And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And I believe there's a great significance in this. Because not only has God by the finger of God, written and given that law, he has also, by that same finger, written and given us something else. But he's showing in this something else that they have no understanding of. 
you would think sometimes that all the law, I mean, rather that all that God has ever given was the Ten Commandments. And people say the most stupid things. They say, well, I want to live by the golden rule. No, you're going to die by the golden rule. You'd think that that was all that God had ever given us. But here is a picture of that second writing. And that second writing, that second writing on the ground, I believe is a gospel picture. What happened to the first tablets of the law? Well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. And to those that say that God would not have given us a law if he had not believed and if we could not in some way keep it, when he gave that law there on Mount Sinai to Moses, the people were at the very bottom of that mountain violating that law as it was given. Doesn't mean we have any ability to. But anyway, Moses came down off that mount. And you know, a strange thing had happened according to to Aaron. And that was that the people somehow taking all their golden jewelry and everything like that, and they just cast it all in a melting pot, and lo and behold, out comes a golden calf. No. They had made a golden calf. And they were worshiping that golden calf that golden calf, they were dancing around it, making all kind of noise. And when Moses saw that, he took those tablets of stone and he threw them at that golden calf, destroying it and at the same time breaking those tablets. Well, that's it, isn't it? No. Because the Lord called Moses up again and commanded him to make a second set. We read this in Deuteronomy. It says, At that time the Lord said unto me, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and come up unto me into the mount. Do you notice he didn't say, I guess I'll have to change them a little bit. I guess I'll have to kind of lower the standard a little bit. I guess I'll just kind of have to lower the bar a little bit so everybody can hop across it. No, he wrote the same thing on the second tablet system. The second writing required the same thing, demanded the same thing, but there was one exception. He said to Moses, I'll write on the tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark. Thou shalt put these tablets of stone in the ark. In Exodus 40, it says, And he took and put the testimony into the ark and set the staves on the ark and put the mercy seat above the ark. 
And this second writing, Christ showed again what God had pictured in all this. The law, when put in the Ark of the Covenant, was covered by the blood-sprinkled mercy seat. In other words, between the thrice holy God who said he would dwell between the cherubims over the mercy seat, between the thrice holy unchangeable God and those tablets there in the Ark of the Covenant was that golden lid, the mercy seat, the propitiatory, where that propitiation of blood of that God-appointed sacrifice was taken by the priest and sprinkled on that. So that when God looked down in our way of speaking, he didn't see that broken law. He saw the blood. When that judgment, you remember, passed throughout all of Egypt, and the firstborn in every household of man and beast was destroyed that night, God said, now you take, you Hebrews take the blood of this Passover lamb and you paint it on the lintels and doorposts and when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. You see, salvation begins with God. It continues with God. It is accomplished by God. It is for God. He said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. You say, well, he, he didn't kill anybody in their house. Oh, yes, he did. He killed a substitute. He killed that God-appointed substitute. And all of this was simply a picture of Christ Jesus and Him crucified. And this is the way God would save those who were condemned by the broken law to death. The shed blood of an innocent and God-appointed substitute and sacrifice would stand between the law and their condemnation. And here was the one that these pictures foreshadowed. And he's writing again the second time on the ground. You know anything about that second writing? I'll tell you this. A long, long time. A long, long time. Before I ever heard about that second writing from God, I heard about that first. And I heard the principle of it being stated by my own parents from the time I was an Small child. You say, what do you mean? I mean, that law said, 
do good and live. Do good and you won't be condemned. They phrased it something like this. Don't you want to go to heaven? I was stupid then, I'm stupid now, but I wasn't so stupid that I didn't want to go to heaven. Don't you want to go to heaven? You better be a good boy. You better be a good boy. My friends, when we tell our children stupid stuff like that, damning stuff like that, we've not done them good. But there's this second writing. There was a long time. I sat down in the pews as a child in religion, in Sunday school classes, had so many pins that they ran down my, my lapel. I looked like, I looked like uh, Omar Gaddafi. Nobody told me about that second writing. Nobody told me the ground upon which God can be just and justify a sinner. And I was such a good boy, I guess, that everybody thought maybe I ought to preach. So I started that. Pastor the church. But I couldn't have answered this question for you if my life depended on it. Because I didn't know, just like we none know by nature, how it is that God could take us as we're pictured in this woman, how he could show mercy to us and yet still be true to his law and justice. I didn't know that. And all the time, I had this Bible, and in this Bible, there in Romans 1, here's the Apostle Paul, and he's saying something like this. Never entered into my mind. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm ready to preach the gospel to Jew or to Gentile. All are in the same state. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. The righteousness of God? Yeah. How God can forgive a sinner and at the same time do right in doing it. And here was the one that these things foreshadowed. Christ, the Savior of sinners, the righteousness of God, the wisdom of God, the one in whom God can honor his law and yet show mercy to the guilty. But these guys won't have him. They will not come to him. They will not believe on him. Why? Because they got something they think is better than him. You know what they say about our opinions? I have my own opinion which I highly respect. Well, that's just a reflection of this. We have our own righteousness, we think, which we highly respect. No. And so, 
Verse 9 says, and they which heard it. Now wait a minute. Doesn't it say he was just riding on the ground? He was, but they heard something. In their conscience, they heard something. And when they heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. They left. They forgot their task. Why? Because they were condemned in their conscience. And that's all God's law can do for us. Condemn us. But that is not Holy Spirit conviction. They were not convicted in the sense that all are that God saves. And somebody can just ask the question. I know it comes into our mind. How do you know that? How do you know that it was not the Holy Spirit that was convicting them and and showing them their need of Christ? I know this because they turned and left the only hope of a sinner. If the Holy Spirit was convicting, it says He takes the things of Christ and shows them to us. But they just turned and walked away. No, they were just convicted in their conscience. And they left the only hope for a sinner. They left the only one and the only way that God can be just and justifies. They left the only righteousness. And he's left alone with the woman now. You know, that's where it all takes place. It's between God and the sinner. God's going to get you to himself. He's going to shut up everyone that he saves to nothing but him. He's going to close the ears of men and women to all this religious dribble that's being shouted in every ear in our day. He's going to bring us to an end of ourselves and to all hopelessness in everyone and everything but himself. And he's going to say something to us. He asked her, woman, where are your accusers? Where are those thine accusers? Does, does any man condemn you now? Do they have any right? Did they ever have any right to condemn you or anything else? If, if all they can do is condemn you, they've not helped you any. She says, no man, Lord. And listen to his words to this sinner. Verse 11. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go 
and sin no more. Now, if he is God in the flesh, if he is the perfect one, if he is, as described, the just one, how can he say that to this adulteress? How could he speak peace to her? How could he dare say, you are not condemned? Because he was on his way to be condemned in her place. He was on the way to be condemned and to die under the hand of divine justice for her sin. He was on his way to bear her sin in its entirety in his own body on the tree. And he pronounced her just like the gospel pronounces all who believe on him now as justified. What does he say to her? Neither do I condemn thee. What is the opposite of condemnation? It's justification. To be condemned is to be pronounced guilty. To be justified is to be pronounced by God not guilty. He said, I don't condemn you. And that's as clear as what Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 1. When he says, by the Spirit of God, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? Is that really true? Is that really wonderful? There is, therefore, in the light of what Christ accomplished on that cross by himself, purging our sins, dying in our place, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's why I say this is a picture of justification. He looked at her and he said, neither do I condemn you. Paul said again, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord through His glorious person and work, and by no other way. 
And so he writes in Romans 3, being or having been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now I dare say that if Christ walked in this building this morning and he walked over to you pointed his finger in your face and said, I don't condemn you. You'd say, I'm saved. I'm safe. But if he did that, it would be no more true than when he says it to his people in the gospel. That's what the gospel says. That's what the message of free justification says. God, because he has condemned sin in Christ, does not condemn me. No condemnation. I don't have to wait. And if you notice, notice this, he doesn't say, go and sin no more and you won't be condemned. We try that all our lives. No, he says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Let me ask you this. Do you think she did sin again? I'm sure she did. Even justified sinners in this flesh. They're still sinners in themselves. They still fail. They still sin. But they're not condemned if they be in Christ. John said, my little children... These things I write unto you, that ye sin not. That's always what we're commanded. But, and if any man sin, or when any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And she's now brought from condemnation of the law to constraint by love. She no longer walks in this world before God for promise of reward or for threat of punishment, but because He in His free grace and mercy through the death of Christ has saved her from all her sins, therefore she serves Him now out of love. And this is the true gospel wherein the righteousness of God is revealed. This is what Christ says to his people in the gospel. I do not condemn you. 
go and sin no more. Have we heard that? We used to sing a little chorus. And if this woman who doesn't have any name, I believe primarily just so you and I will know that this is applicable to all Christ saves. But if she were here this morning, I believe she could sing this chorus. But we sang this chorus. Have you heard what Jesus said to me? They're all taken away, away. Your sins are pardoned and you are free. They're all taken away. They're all taken away, away. They're all taken away, away. My sins are all taken away. My sins are all taken away. If we hear as sinners, if He gives us a hearing ear and a believing heart, if we hear that gospel in the ear of our heart, By the ear of faith, we'll hear just exactly that. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. God, speak that to the heart of your people this morning. And never let it be the sound that we delight above all others to hear. Because Amazingly, we are such people. We need to hear that spoken to us over and again, again and again. May the Lord bless his word to your heart.